Hello and good evening to you. You're welcome to Reader's Hour on Quarantine FM. You are joined by your hosts, Catherine Gallagher and Anna Dalton. In Reader's Hour, we take a look at Irish literature in all forms, including fiction, drama, essays, poetry, journalism and everything in between. On today's show, we are going to hear from author Patrick Frain, whose book we discussed on the show two weeks ago. We will be reading a selection of poems, our personal favourites. But first of all, though, we are going to discuss a digital exhibition at the Museum of Literature Ireland on the American abolitionist and writer Frederick Douglass. Um, before, Anna, we get into the exhibition, you were just mentioning before we started recording that this Museum of Literature is relatively new. It is. And I'd say a lot of people actually haven't been to it um, because it only opened in 2019. And then obviously I wouldn't have had much of a run before things shut down in 2020. But it was it just to tell people about kind of how it started. It was a partnership between the idea came about kind of a discussion between the National Library of Ireland and UCD um, and their historic property, Newman House on Stevens Green um, and particularly the Joyce collect Joyce's collections in the NLI. So they thought about kind of just collaborating to create a museum space in that building um, and then work began in it about 10 years ago and yeah opened opened there but uh, just over a year ago and the reason why we're talking about this online exhibition and indeed probably the reason why the exhibition was online exhibition was created in the first place was in 2020 it was 175 years since frederick Douglass's trip to Ireland and Frederick Douglass is um, probably historically one of the most well-known and respected activists um, in terms of the abolitionist movement, uh, a black activist as well. It's up until Frederick Douglass kind of came up on the scene and, and his contemporaries was that these experiences were predominantly written by white abolitionists and his memoir narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass an American slave that was published in 1845 was it had a huge impact definitely so Douglass was born in Maryland in America he was the son of a white father and an enslaved mother whose name was Harriet Bailey and raised by his grandmother so born into slavery, he worked on plantations and in shipyards and I think by all accounts was always a very curious person, um, you know, described as having a thirst for knowledge and very interested in education and apparently had a sense early on that education was going to be a key tool if he was ever going to achieve freedom from slavery. Um, when he was working as a teenager, apparently actually he did encounter um two irish dock workers who this is actually mentioned in the in the exhibition i think who encouraged him um to escape and then at age 20 he did actually manage to escape and he left maryland and fled to 
Massachusetts. So that, you know, fleeing the South, I think, would have been a crucial um, move, you know, to get away from the more, you know, pro-slavery South into the freer North. Um, so, you know, he did manage to get away. Um, but then I think at that time there was still some danger that he might be recaptured into slavery and maybe transported back um, to Maryland. So he actually left and he set sail and managed to cross the Atlantic and get to, to Ireland. And that was in 1845 when he arrived there. And he was only meant to stay in here right in Dublin and he was only meant to stay for a couple of days, but he, he ended up staying for four months. And even prior to his coming to Dublin via Liverpool in the States, he had done some public speaking. Um, his first couple of experiences, he was invited to speak and reluctantly did so because some of these um, speeches or orations were in front of white people and he was very reluctant. And I think some of the reaction that he got, now this isn't really mentioned in the exhibition, but some of the reaction that he got, I think, was one of the catalysts to him writing his um, memoir that people could not believe that such a well-educated, um, well-spoken, eloquent man uh, could have been a slave. Prior to coming to Ireland, um, Frederick very much looked up to the Irish political leader, Daniel O'Connell. Um, Daniel O'Connell would have even have been known across the Atlantic, by all accounts, quite the humanitarian in that he wasn't just concerned about the Irish cause and Irish issues. He, he was um, very vocal about his condemnation of slavery um, as well, amongst a, a litany of other things he, he felt quite strongly about. And um, it, I think Daniel O'Connell was giving a, a speech of, of, of some description in, in Dublin and um, Frederick Douglass arrived and, and it was so packed that he was in the back of the room, he couldn't get a seat. And when O'Connell finished speaking, um, the room had, had kind of emptied out a bit and um, Frederick Douglass got speaking to Daniel O'Connell's son and the son said, gosh, you need to you need to meet my father. And then Daniel O'Connell then asked him to to speak and um, on the stage and kind of freestyle. Uh, but apparently they only met once, but they both left quite the impression on each other. And during his stay as well, um, he published an Irish edition of the narrative um, with Richard Webb, who was an Irish abolitionist and founding member of the Hibernian Anti-Slavery Association. That was, and that book, Anna, was quite, it was very popular in Dublin at the time. Yeah, definitely. It apparently was very well received here and it sold out, so it had to go into multiple different print runs. Um, and, you know, and Douglas as well was able to earn money as well from the sale of that. Um, you know, he was earning money from that as well, which 
it was so important for people to be able to read first-hand accounts mm -hmm. of the experience of slavery. And I think that was so important. And Frederick Douglass and other, you know, former slaves who wrote these first-hand accounts, you know, it was it was crucial that it was in their own words. And I think, you know, for people to be able to read about the, you know, the conditions of it. And then kind of like you say that, you know, it was part of the um, strategy for continuing slavery in America was to, you know, propel this myth or, you know, complete lies that, you know, Africans were an inferior race and incapable of being educated. So this idea of somebody being able to write their own story and to go around and orate and speak and, you know, tell that story is, is was crucial and it was very popular um in Ireland. Um and I think it's also said that Frederick Douglass kind of he really struck a chord with the Irish people and likewise he, he felt he sort of identified with the struggle that was going on here because it was sort of in the I suppose the the midst of the famine really is when he would have arrived. And you know, I think he kind of learned then a lot about the oppression of Irish people and apparently then was an advocate for um, Irish independence and kind of would have brought that back with him and kind of shared that when he returned to America. So it really was a very interesting, you know, kind of and in some ways quite seems almost quite by chance that he managed to that he came to Ireland. But it really it, it was very, um very important to both to him and made a big impact on the Irish people. The, the trip also is said to have opened up his eyes to um, women's rights, to anyone who was being oppressed, no, no matter who <laughs> they were. And th th he, he took that along with him. And he says that the trip was very transformative. And um, I think about Ireland, he said that I can truly say I spent some of the happiest moments of my life since landing in this country. I breathe and lo, the chattel becomes a man. How he managed to go back, because I was trying to figure this out, how did he go back to the States if he was seen as a fugitive slave? And even when he was in Ireland, the threat of being captured was quite real um, and being found out of, of his whereabouts. But after four months in Ireland, he went to the UK and he was there for 16 months. And there was a group of women there that came together and paid off. It's described as they paid for his freedom. They, they, they wrote and they paid off what was co called at the time his owner or his master. Mm -hmm. And after that, then, he was able to go to the US as a quote-unquote free man. But he unfortunately still faced a lot of prejudice when he went over. We were both quite impressed at how much was put into the exhibition, but not, not overwhelmingly so either. Yeah, it's really nicely done. It's They use quite a nice, I'm not sure what, web platform they're using but it's very visually appealing kind of very easy to navigate and they also they make use of kind of some of the archival documents of you know the you can see the original cover of 
um, of his memoir when it was first published and quotes from letters and and kind of drawings and photographs of him and and kind of related people so it's it's very nicely done and I think definitely really accessible even if you know nothing about it beforehand um it sort of just builds the narrative around this his connection to Ireland but you learn a lot about his yeah his his life and and what he achieved in it so really nicely done and it's I suppose yeah the museums and you know galleries are, are having to do more digital exhibitions um than you know than they bargain for but I think yeah this this is a really nice one to check out so Catherine I know that you were talking to Patrick Frayne recently do you want to tell us what the two of you were chatting about yeah, I was chatting to writer and journalist Patrick Crane last week. We had discussed his book, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, a couple of weeks ago. It was the first book that we, I suppose, have put a, a spotlight on in, in terms of, of uh, like a book club, so to speak. So it was great to be able to chat to him um, properly and chatted about his early life um the influences of both his, his parents on him and his background as a journalist and how that has affected his writing and also that the process of um personal essay writing and experiencing a, a substantial writing project for the first time so it was great to chat to him and you can listen now you mentioned it off air, Patrick, about the idea and the process of publishing a book in a pandemic. What has that experience been like? Uh, it's been really strange. It's In a way, it was nice to have something to look forward to back in 2020. So my book was meant to have come out in, I think, May or June. I can't even remember now. But that was kind of by March, April, they knew that wasn't going to happen. And like loads of books, it was kind of postponed. And it was postponed to September, um, which is when it did come out. But at, when we postponed it, I think a lot of people thought things would be back to normal by September and that there'd be kind of book launch events and festivals. And I was lined up for festivals, uh, which I was really looking forward to. Um, and of course, none of that stuff could happen. Um, but what was nice about it was everyone had a rough 2020 and I'm no exception and it was kind of nice to have the book come out in September as a kind of break in the year when it's something new to do and I could have Zoom conversations like this um, with people about the book. So I did a lot of events online and, um, and it was it, because the book is quite personal, it was really nice to have um, people respond to it personally. So people would either contact me on Twitter or email me or sometimes ring me just about specific essays. And that was quite nice, you know, just the, just the kind of idea of stuff that I had written here in my shed two years ago um, and kind of coming from the heart actually connecting with people. So it was a kind of nice second half of the year in that respect. Patrick, I, I would have mentioned it on the show a couple of weeks ago that I personally uh, noticed that your experience as a journalist really kind of came through in, in parts kind of peppered here and there whether it was 
talk, you know, talking to strangers, your your chapter on on that, and and chatting with with ordinary people, and um, kind of your your skepticism on on charm and and charisma, and and how you work around that, and also with your own memories and experiences, double checking with friends and family, being like, did did that happen, or you know, is is that how I saw it? Was that something you were cognizant of when you were writing that your professional experience kind of in parts came came through when you were writing or do you treat them very separate? Uh, it's kind of interesting because in a way it started out as a very separate process because I'm 45 and, and maybe around five years ago I kind of really started to feel uh, restricted by journalism because I've been doing it for a while and I really love journalism. I really love good reporting. Um, and I kind of was, I wanted to branch out. So I started writing short stories and essays, firstly short stories and essays, and very much with a view to writing without the kind of structures of journalism, you know, um, fact checking or, uh, deadlines or any of these things and just bring myself up to remind myself that I'm a writer and that I can write other kinds of things because I think sometimes when you've been doing one thing for a while you worry that that's all you can do and I used to write other things so it was it's been a really lovely experience I mean difficult because it's not always easy to write well you know and um, and I had to learn uh, a lot but it was a really nice experience kind of figuring out I could write different types of things that you can apply your writing skill to other things than the thing you're used to doing. Um, but definitely as I went on with the essay, I started to think a lot about memory and the nature of memoir and how it works. Because a lot of the essays were exercises and going, me going, I remember that thing that happened years ago. I should write that down. And then you start writing it down and you realize there was gaps in your memory. And I'd go and I'd ring you know, like I have essays about my band or I have essays about my family and I might ring my mother or I might ring Dara the bass player in my band and I'd go, this is how I remember it. And, and they'd go, oh no, you're getting that a bit wrong. And usually, usually the story part of it was right. You know, like the, the we'd agree on the kind of beats of the story. It was like weird details. Like Dara would go, I wasn't there for it. And I'd go, but you're in my memory, in my head, you were there. Dara goes, no, no, I think that was Paul. I think that was the other guy in the band. Um, so it was kind of fascinating about memory, and, and I've read a lot of mem memoir um, in recent years um, that I loved. I was reading, um, the, over the last week I was reading Patricia, uh, Patricia Lockwood's Pre-Study, which I oh, loved, and yes. again as I'm reading it, I'm thinking about memory, and I'm thinking about memoir, um, and there's things you do in memoir that, that it's, it's okay, but you wouldn't do in journalism. Like, I quote people. You know, I people I've, I've remembered conversations, and obviously I would never do that in an article because mm -hmm. you want to get it exactly right in an article. So you'd be going by a recorder, and you know, when I was eight, I wasn't carrying a recorder, so <laughs> so you're kind of remembering these conversations, and that's kind of okay in the context of memoir. It's kind of as long as you're not libeling someone or something. Um, but it really did make me think about, and even. Um, I started, I realized that um, I, in order to fact check as well, I used to interrogate myself a bit, you know, like I was an interviewee, I'd go, 
I'd almost have a dialogue in my head going, are you sure that's what happened? And if, if I couldn't check something, you know? Um, but I think it's very interesting because the other thing, like I'm very influenced by Irish essay writers like Sinead Gleeson and Emily Pine, who'd be friends of mine, and Rosita Boland, you know, who I work with. Um, and it's, I'm very interested in, um, I think it was, yeah, I think it was Emily was saying that she became really conscious and, and that this was her story, like when she was writing Notes to Self, that, you know, her family might have a different take and neither take is wrong. So you also have to take that on board. Like, uh, and, you know, Dara in my band was particularly going, like we were writing, I have an essay about being in a pirate station and Dara went, you know, I'd write it differently. Like there's nothing wrong in this, but my version of this story is different. And he, and that's a kind of interesting thing to kind of grapple with, that our memories are not only fallible, but they, um, they have their own agenda, you know? Like, so like if we were, like, I think something, I was thinking actually it would be interesting to do essays, something I might try in the future, where I actually interview the people involved, kind of like I do in my Irish Times journalism, and go, so this is my version of the story, and now this is what Dara says, <laughs> you know, or this is what my mom says. Um, and she goes, I mean, there's a bit of that in the book. Like, um, I think I have a line, I have an essay about my brother's birth, and like I showed everything to people who were in them, you know, so I remember showing that to my mother, and she thought it was funny, and she was fine with everything, except um, she wanted me to point out that she wasn't a smoker, because I had a joke about how she was brought into this ward where everyone was smoking and soon she was gagging for a cigarette on the baby, um, which is a funny joke. And my mom said I wasn't, like, my mom smoked at one point, but she wasn't. So I actually put in in brackets, my mom insists that she wasn't, she wasn't gagging for a cigarette, just a baby. Oh, that's funny. Um, um, but you can play with that stuff. I mean, I, I was kind of conscious of that, like that we, like memoir is a lovely form and essay is a lovely form for kind of exploring things, but it, but it's very much about your the writer's thought process and their individual thought process. And having spent so many years talking to other people and getting their story and trying to, to tease, you know, tease things out of other people, to have the flip of the spotlight being put on you for a change, has that something that has taken time to kind of become comfortable with or did, did you think did, did it has it bothered you or has it not no it, it hasn't bothered me at all but probably I, I have a joke in the book about how i'm someone who likes to dance out of the shadows when it's not my time to shine um and so there's a little bit of me that's a bit show-offy um but but the reality is for most of my journalistic career for all of my journalistic career through different newspapers in the Irish Times, I've never written about myself. So I've always either been writing kind of cultural articles about art and criticism that might have my opinion, but doesn't really talk much about my personal life. Or I'd be writing reportage where I'm interviewing other people. So I think actually by the time I started writing these essays, um, they were kind of ready to come out. There were things that a lot of, some of them were things I'd been talking or thinking about for a while. Some of them were, were kind of things I wanted to process, like some of the more difficult things in the book, like not having kids or um, mental health difficulties or 
uh, working as a care worker. I have an essay about that, which I really wanted to write about because I hadn't processed the experience and I knew enough to know that writing it down would help me process it, as well as being an interesting thing for other people to read. Whereas some people would go, oh, it's very brave to write about your mental health or something. I don't think that comes into it. I think I was at a point in my life where I was already open about mental health stuff with my friends and family. I just hadn't talked about it beyond that, not because I was ashamed or because I felt the stigma, but just because I hadn't done it yet. So having, I don't feel exposed by having that stuff out there, whereas there's probably other stuff that's still raw for me, that, that if it was out there, I would be, well, there definitely is other stuff that is still raw for me, that if it was out there, I feel very um, exposed to it. You've already touched on it there. I, I just want to, to ask you a little bit more about it. The idea of something already being processed. Do, do you feel that's almost like, do you, do you feel a sense of almost like a duty of care to, to your readers, maybe in your book or maybe in, in future projects and pieces that this is a safe place uh, this is my experience, but here I am with it now, and almost kind of like not not a hand holding exercise, but is that something that is important to you that the reader knows that I feel I know where I'm going with it, and I'm going to be okay reading this piece? Yeah, like I had, um, I kind of realized this afterwards rather than during it, but it, I kind of felt like the essays individually should be either entertaining or helpful or, or both. So like, and this is not to say that you should never write when you're feeling raw, because sometimes it can be useful and sometimes it can be useful later. But um, say the brain fever essay about mental health, I had, that's probably one of the earliest essays. And I first set out to write it. I had a bad year in 2017 with my mental health. And I first started writing it that year and I just put it aside because it was, it wouldn't help anyone to read it. It was just, I mean, it was probably useful for me to write it, but it was more when I went back in 2018, late 2018 and started rewriting it that I kind of started seeing more useful things in it and funny things in it and and I, I actually think, like, humor, I think, is important to me because I think that, you know, in the midst of great suffering, people can laugh and things can be found funny. And you can get a more, a more thorough, fully realized version of the experience when you're not in the pain of it. And I think when you read stuff, I think there was a tendency, maybe 10 years ago, particularly in online publications, to kind of encourage young writers to write really personal stuff in their early 20s when they were probably still in the midst of the pain of that stuff. I thought it was quite unethical of those publishers to get, and that stuff used to do really well online, you know, which is awful. And, and it was like kind of almost clickbait pain. Um, yeah. Whereas the really good memorizing, like the other stuff I've loved, I loved um, Cost a Living by Deborah Levy or Deborah Levy. Um, and just because it's a lovely memoir, but again, it's, you read it and you don't feel like 
you don't feel like the writer's putting you in danger. You know, like you feel like they're going somewhere with it. Um, and they can go somewhere with it because they've got the benefit of perspective. And it's not that this stuff isn't, you know, it's not that individual bits of it are painful for you. or It's more that, you know, you've got the battle scars, but now you're okay, you know. And in, in terms of the, the structure of the book and what you decided to include in it and what essays you decided to include, did the experience of being in a band guide you in any way? Because, you know, if I'm not a musical person, but I imagine if, if you're putting together albums or mixtapes, you're thinking of what kind of tracks you're putting on like a faster track or a slow track or whatever musicians do did you kind of have a similar process when you approached the the final stages of the book exactly like that like when i knew it was going to be a book um i think i had my brendan my editor my excellent editor brendan barrington's memory is like that I had a bit less, but I, my memory is that I had two thirds of what's in the book, at least in draft form by the time it was decided this was going to be a book. Um, and at that point, I kind of even wrote the essays to fill out gaps, you know, in the book. Like I, and I very much thought of it like an album. And I loved the idea. Like I was asked before, because th- in theory, you could have done this as a more continuous narrative. But I was asked um, why I kind of did it as individual essays, even though they're all kind of linked. And it was because I love stuff like that. I love little discrete things you can dip in and out of. And I think that might be because I, I loved albums. And when we were in a band, one of the fun parts of it is when you've got enough done to start thinking of it as a complete work. And you, and you do exactly what you just said. You go, you know, it'd be brilliant to have a fast song for... Uh, track seven and we don't have one let's go right one and similarly like i for me that was like for me fast and slow was usually on the spectrum from just kind of funny romps on the one hand to kind of more serious deep dives into like more serious things on the other and sometimes i'd go it'd be great to have another funny one you know like so i wrote the the essay about my brother's birth you know it's got there's some serious undercurrents but that's largely a funny essay, the essay Cool Mountain, which is about my mother's family, really, and kind of some of the kind of thematic reverberations through the generations. That was written because I'd written, early on, I'd written the military essay about my dad being an army man and all that, what that did to me as a young fella. Um, and I just went, I, okay, I've got an essay that's kind of about my dad. Uh, I'll write an essay that's about my mom's family, you know? So when you started thinking of it as a complete work, themes would suggest themselves. You mentioned um, your chapter, Cool Mountain. That was something I actually wanted to ask you about. It was one of the chapters I particularly enjoyed because like that, it was hearing about your mom's side of the family and all the, the kind of like generational differences trickling down from your grandparents to your mother and your aunts and uncles and yourselves then and there's everything from there's so many like gorgeous 
there's so much passion in that essay in particular and, and, and conversations that you heard in, in the car and um, I, I loved the, the line where your grandfather was offered a job in a nursing home in Cork City and your grandmother being relieved because she always wanted to be a city woman and the humour between your mum and your aunt Phil and your uncle John and how when they would come together the crack would be mighty and all these and then the as well then dealing with um, your mum's cancer and hearing about your grandfather's mental illness and there's so much packed in that essay do you mind just telling us a little bit about maybe that trip to Cool Mountain that you took? Yeah, that essay was one of the most important for me and one of the hardest to get right um, because I knew there was like some sort of, I'm just really conscious that stuff that happens reverberates through a family. You know, I think my granddad's issues with his mental illness does trickle down and I have issues with kind of depression and anxiety. Um, and I was always really conscious as well. We moved from Cork, which I, as a kid, when I was around six or seven, to Kildare, because my dad was working in Macara as an army man. And when my mom was 12, they moved from, which was almost a bigger journey back then, in the 50s, they moved from uh, Cool Mountain out in West Cork in this really um, kind of really remote, isolated area to the city. And it was basically, and that was, so that was the big rift in their life and the comparable rift in my life where I was leaving all my cousins behind and my aunts and uncles was the move to, to Kildare. Um, and Cool Mountain was always like this mythical thing for, it felt like this mythical home place for my folks, uh, for my mom and for my aunt and un aunts and uncles. Um, so there's something very, you know, we, they say we're meaning, meaning making machines and that we like, we have this kind of narratives that are very important, but you're not sure why. Um, and that was an attempt to try and understand why that narrative of them moving from West Cork to the city and us moving later on from Cork to Kildare was such an important narrative in my life, like way more than it should be. Um, and, and part of it is, I think it's because it echoes and there's a kind of, there's a generational echo in it. Um, and, and partly because the stories of those movements, um, particularly my mom's move from Cool Mountain, is built a little bit in trauma. It's built in the fact that they were living in almost, my, they would say they were living a peasant lifestyle, you know, in West Cork, in a, in a tiny subsistence farm with, um, with no electricity, cooking on a fire, moving to the city because, probably because of my granddad's mental health problems and being unable to make a go of that. So there's a kind of, there's a story of trauma in that, you know, and I think, like when I look at Ireland as a whole, um, um, I think of a line in that essay about how um, the words, uh, it was a different time, or the saddest words in the Irish in Ireland. Um, like even this week with the mother and baby home stuff, yeah. I just feel like trauma is at the bedrock of the Irish, probably everywhere, but I live in Ireland so I can speak about Ireland. Trauma just feels like it's at the bedrock of 
everything that's wrong in Ireland at the moment. In that essay, I'm describing a kind of day trip, a day trip we all took out to Cool Mountain, the old family homestead, after my granny and my eldest aunt had died. And they were processing that grief, my mom and her sister and brother. And they were processing everything that had happened in their family. Um, but it was a it was a happy day trip, you know, and those things are true at the same time. And that essay was an attempt to first write about that and then write deeper into my own kind of experience of that. I just wanted to ask you before we finish up about then so that's your mum's side of the family and you started off the book um about your father and the, the military life and that did kind of again was maybe pe- peppered here and there throughout the book did that have a huge impact or influence on you growing up in watching your dad and um his mannerisms and his approach to things did that have have a big influence on you growing up yeah it's kind of strange like i think I mean, I think as well that essay, the military life for me is, I, I think in a weird way, it's about masculinity and masculinity as performance. Like, because if there's one thing I kind of really learned, um, like I think my, when I look back on it now, I think my dad's model of masculinity was actually quite a healthy role model. Like he was a very caring, um, nurturing dad um, in the house and he was like he cooked and he cleaned and he did all these and he changed nappies in an era when he did as much of that as my mom you know and uh, and that was but I could also see that outside of the house he had this reputation of being this and he looks like a very tough man and he was in the command he was in the um, rangers you know um, so so I was always fascinated I wanted to be an army man when I was younger um, and I think that's actually, I kind of realized this after I'd written the thing. Wanting to be in the army and then later wanting to be in bands was all part of wanting to belong and wanting to be part of the gang of some sort. Um, but when I realized, like when I became a more arty kind of person and realized the army probably wasn't for me, um, and I was lucky enough, like me and my brother, my brother's also, like my brother makes films. Me and him don't watch any sport. We don't do any of the manly stuff that my dad loves. Um, but it began to make me realize how much of um, how much of gender is a performance. It occurred. It only it occurred to me as I was writing it, and I put it in there. And it's kind of mad that young boys and young girls as well play war. You know, like we go out and pretend when we were, when I was like eight, we'd go out and pretend to kill each other. And you're like going, yeah. that's very strange that that's just a cultural norm. Like that's kind of unhealthy. I mean, it didn't turn me into a psychopath or anything, but it's kind of mad. So I wanted to write about that militarism and how, you know, it is still held up as a very kind of alpha important um, thing in our world, um, but it's so dodgy. Wasn't there a story? I'm I'm trying to remember now. Um, the the fighting system in in my own head. A story of these young fellas that would come around and and would tie on trees, like just the bizarreness <laughs> of that. Like the, the, that was just the the typical. I'm 
45, so my childhood was kind of largely in the 80s. Um, and it was just kind of mad in those days. Like I have a lot of nephews and god, niece and godchildren that I love. And they're so kind of looked after all the time, like to the extent that it, maybe it's too much, you know, and they, they're monitored. And um, when we were younger, you'd just wander off for the day and you'd arrive back for dinner, in, like in the summer. And nobody, nobody freaked out if they didn't find their kid for a while. And what used to happen was these two guys that were in the FCA used to come down to the woods near our estate in Newbridge. This is like for about a month, I reckon. Um, and they'd do it every day, and we loved it, but they'd basically abuse us. They'd train us, in inverted commas. They'd like send, they'd play prisoner of war, where you'd have to go off and hide, and they'd find you. They'd find you and give you a little bit of a slap, like, and then tie you to a tree. And we thought this was fun. <laughs> like, and it was girls and boys. There was like maybe 10 or 12 of us would turn up in the woods. Um, and these two guys, would, they'd do some training, and then they were basically playing that film, you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger or something where he's like chasing down the bodies. Um, I wanted to write about those things partly because I feel like a lot of people in my generation would recognize that kind of madness, but it'll soon become kind of insane that kids were allowed to get up to this stuff. Writing and, and, and publishing um, your first book, has this unlocked appetite for 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 more down the line will we will we see maybe in a couple of years will we see another patrick crane book on the bookshelves um i hope so like i, I really like the idea now of just kind of having extracurricular projects like i love my job my day job but um i've a lot of short stories written so i think i might see about putting them together um i'm working on i'm working on some scripts for like for tv film stuff um, and yeah, I'd like to write some more essays. Like it was very, it was very useful. I think at, the, at this point in my life to try something new or, or it was more like returning to something old and reminding myself I could do other types of things. Um, you can get caught in these grooves as you kind of get older. And this broke me out of that groove. Well, whatever grooves uh, you end up in the future, we will be surely be keeping an eye. And it's been a pleasure to chat to you today, Patrick. So thank you so much for taking the time and all the best in your future projects. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Patrick for taking the time to chat to me and being a part of the show. And if you want to follow his work, you can, of course, purchase OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea, available from all good booksellers, but it's also on Twitter, Patrick Frain one and that is just the number one. Um, so, yeah, that was great. And you can listen back a, back a couple of episodes if you want to hear our book discussion. And now just for the final part of the show, we're going to read a few poems. So we thought we'd each pick a couple of poems without telling the other person what we've picked and read them and then just kind of do a, an immediate reaction and chat about them. Will I read the poem and then I'll tell you who it's by? Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, it's good. Keep the, keep the suspense. <laughs> okay. We love a bit of mystery. <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so this poem is called The Sofa. Do not be angry if I tell you your letter stayed unopened on my table for several days. If you were friend enough to believe me, I was about to start writing at any moment. My mind was savagely made up, like a serious sofa moved under a north window. My heart, alas, is not the calmest of places. Still, it is not my heart that needs replacing. And my books seem real enough to me. My disasters, my surrenders, all my loss. Since I was child enough to forget that you loathe poetry, you ask for some. About nature, greenery, insects, and of course, the sun. Surely that would be to open an already open window. To celebrate the impudence of flowers. If I could interest you instead in his large, gentle stares, how his soft shirt is the inside of pleasure to me, why I must wear white for him, imagine he no longer trembles when I approach, no longer buys me flowers for my name day. But I spread on like a house, I begin to scatter to a tiny to and fro at odds with the wear on my threshold. Somewhere a curtain rising wonders where I am, my books sleep, pretending to forget me. Wow. Is the writer of that poem, have they been on the show before? No. They haven't. Oh. <laughs> this would be fun if we did. Um, we just spend the whole rest of the time you trying to guess. <laughs> I think it would be a bit mean. <laughs> no, I just thought I, I just thought I read something recently by... Uh, someone we had on uh, kind of towards the start of Reader's Hour, but obviously I'm wrong. So do you want to enlighten okay. me? I'll reveal. I'll reveal. It's by Maeve McGuckian. I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a poet from Belfast. Oh. Um, yeah. And she's been writing for a good few decades. Um, loads of collections. She's written about the Troubles. Um, yeah, just a wonderful poet. Um, I'm a bit, I'm a fan. But uh, this one of hers, a kind of... I think I'd, I had read it before, but I hadn't seen it in ages. And I was just kind of looking for one of hers. And I found this and I just thought it was great. Um, it but yeah, is. I don't know what you thought of it. It's really, um, it's really striking. And it kind of has, kind of has a whole story to it. Like, I know it's, I hope it's not a cliche thing to say, but the kind of the beginning, the middle and an end, um, I'm not sure if you find that that it does seem to now I haven't heard the poem before and I would need to read it, but um I I could I could hear a whole story in that. Yeah, I think so. And I think the way it starts off with the letter, I think this poem is a, is a letter as well. It's yeah. it's a letter back almost to the person it's addressed to. Um and I think it definitely does have that that narrative movement to it. I th- I just find it quite very it's quite funny as well um you know I think it, it takes it's quite mocking also just about the alleged seriousness of poetry um you know and, and writing about particular subjects or not and it's kind of you know even the fact it's called the sofa I don't know I just think it's quite it's quite mocking and self-aware um which I really like about it one of mine so I'll do the same I won't tell you who it is fake top music I've been drunk and I've been clear I've been straight and I've been queer 
I've been young and I've been old, I've been hot and I've been cold. I've been black and I've been white, I've been wrong and I've been right. I've travelled far and I've travelled back, I've been tight and I've been slack. I've been living, I've been dead, I've been a mind without a head. I've been false and I've been true, I've been me and I've been you. I've been good and I've been bad, I've been haven't and I've been had. I've been sharp and I've been blind, I've been cruel and I've been kind. I've been deaf and I've had ears, had good days and had bad years. I've been rich and I've been poor, I've had doubts and I've been sure. I've been mad and I've been sane, I've been marked with the mark of Cain. I've been cant and I've been could, I've been water and I've been blood. I've been lymph and I've been bone, I've been paper and I've been stone. I've been lost and I've been found, I've been the fox that's gone to ground. I've been ancient and I've been young, I've been a song that never was sung. I've been here and I've been there, I've been him and I've been her. I have come and I have gone, I've been off and I've been on. I've been over and I've been under, been the taker and the plundered. Been the vanquished, been the hero, patient X and Madame Zero. Being the loved one, being the lover, this circus act that's not yet over. So okay, I actually I don't think I've heard that before. Um. So yeah, I'm really not sure actually um, <laughs> who that would be. I'm guessing it's it's. I'm trying to think when I would guess it's. Re- I don't know. I wouldn't say it's very recent anyway. No, it's it's not. I, I wouldn't blame anyone for, for not knowing because uh, the late MacDara Woods was married to Eileen Hulwan. Um, but MacDara Woods was a writer in his own right and quite a successful one at that. He was a member of the Ishtana, if people uh, you know, know, know about that. But um, MacDara Woods, I probably mentioned him once or twice but he was the for a long time he was the tutor on the MacDara sorry he was the tutor with the Scalacla writers workshop that I I went to and um I would have considered him a friend of mine we we stayed in touch in between the um in between the summers but this poem, um, I had it here a minute ago. This poem, uh, big top, big top music from his collection, music from the big tent. I always go back to it because it's the first poem I heard him read out to us when I was fourteen. I understand that this was about his him getting older. And um, he talked a lot about, even in his kind of classes with us, they wouldn't even call them classes, they were more chats. Um, he just talked a lot about age and, and talked a lot about, uh, I suppose, the disability of age as well and, and getting old. Um, but also looking back at the life that he had and all the people he met and I think yeah it's um it's interesting to me as well that the, the kind of the circus 
theme that's kind of in that the title of the poem and the collection um it and it does have this kind of rhythmical kind of the back and forth almost like this trapeze kind of a a, a flow of yeah i suppose the ups and downs that just yeah that that we live by um yeah it's a nice one i like it too so do you want to hit me with your next mystery? I will. <laughs> I will. I will. This one is a shorter poem, so I'll go ahead. Actually, sorry, I say it's a shorter poem. It's This is um, taken from a longer poem, but it's not too long, the part I'm going to read. So it's from Terrestrials. A sparrow weaves over the derelict terrace the psychics used to meet in toward the snow-garnished mountains. They brought their lozenges of grief here, held each other's pallid hands and summoned reeds of kindness into their voices. The men down tools, take lunch, smoke in a row, dangle their legs from the wall. Their kids mostly, a xylophone of hard hats, tuneless in the rain. The half-built apartment block is waiting and they will never live there. I knew a boy who wanted to be a pilot so much that he became one. Farewell, years of simulated taxiing on the world's fantastic runways. Oh, night flights over the patchwork of Europe. Oh, unscheduled layover. Oh, seatbelt sign. I knew a man who hiked into the mountains. His name was Early Morning Light. His name was Sunset in Libra. Between the Scots Pine and the Ash, he found the branch with his name on it and stepped off it into the air. Wow. And that's it. I love the xylophone of hard hats. That's such a great um because that that's what when you when you see kind of um builders all kind of sitting together, they're <laughs> they're nearly like um like yeah. a xylophone and that they're like children themselves. Which is probably yeah. true. Absolutely, yeah. I really loved that image as well. I just thought it was a really, really clever one. Um, and kind of you can picture them with uh, on the wall. Um, yeah. So I'll t- I'll tell you this is by Stephen Sexton. So I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a kind of I guess an up and coming poet. He's just had his first collection out recently enough. I think last year from Stinging Fly. Um, oh yes. And I haven't actually seen the collection yet or kind of got a copy of it but um you know I've heard very good things about him he's just kind of been on my radar it's called the name of the collection is if all the world and love were young I don't know a lot to me about sort of flight flight and aspiration and kind of wanting to you know to be different things you know having kind of Mm -hmm. dreams of of becoming different things when you're younger um but sort of in a more oblique way. But I just really liked it. I liked, I thought it was really kind of lively. Um, yeah, had kind of great life in it. I feel this is one that's going to be quite on brand for me, but uh, it's my favourite for a reason. Um, so you might know uh, who it is, uh, but I will still keep the name until the end. So the girl with the keys to Pierce's cottage. When I was 16, I met a dark girl. Her dark hair was darker because her smile was so bright. She was the girl with the keys to Pierce's cottage, and her name was Cot Kalan. 
The cottage was built into the side of a hill. I recall two windows and a cosmic piece of bare brown rooms and on whitewashed walls, photographs of the passionate and pale pierce. I recall wet thatch and peeling jams and how all was best seen from below in the field. I used to sit in the rushes with ledger book and pencil, compiling poems of passion for Koch Kalan. Often she used to linger on the side of a window, hands by her side and brown legs akimbo, in sun-red skirt and moon-black blazer, looking toward our strange world wide-eyed. Our world was strange because it had no future. She was America-bound at summer's end. She had no choice but to leave her home, the girl with the keys to Pierce's cottage. O Koch Kalan, O Koch Kalan, you have gone with your keys from your own native pace, place. Yet here in this dark, El Graco eyes blaze back from your Connemara postman's daughter's proudly immortal face. So that was by Paul Durkin. <laughs> oh my so, goodness, okay. I was trying to think who could it be. Yeah, that's funny. Um, so, it's fami- familiar. I think I have <laughs> heard it, but not, not in a long time. If anyone wants to send in their favourite poems, to us maybe poems by Irish writers or writers with Irish connections, we should say as well, yeah. that we Absolutely, yeah. mightn't be aware of, because this is something we might do every now and again. It's nice to read and kind of reflect on uh, on other people's work. That's all we have for you now this week on Reader's Hour. We hope you enjoyed tuning in. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at Reader's Hour and you can get in touch with us via email, readershour at gmail.com. As usual, we'll be sharing links to listen back on the podcast, so don't be afraid to spread the word. So that's everything. Take care and enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back to you again next Saturday.